Why does God forgive when we fail? Why does he do that? You may remember some of the words I used to orient us to the message um, now about a month ago and words that talk about our failures and our own journeys, their journey, our journey. Words like adulterer and prostitute and pornography and anger and fighting with words and unwilling to forgive, demeaning words, uh, indifference, ingratitude, coveting, white lies, apathy, selfish, pride, lust. I can't seem to stop. Forgiveness is the bridge, though, that changes the people identified by those words and also the consequences of those actions, and then it bridges them to another place, and that other place is peace, renewed joy, free of shame, purpose and acceptance, tears of joy even because one has been forgiven, having a new song in their heart, feeling close to God again. I need you to understand that these words are attached to very real people, and some of which are listening to me now. And it's not because I know the story of some of your lives. It's that, but it's also that I've lived enough life to realize that what I have recalled, and even more, all of us have experienced in some measure or another. Not the particular word, but there is a word that you you can attach to your life. You've been there before. I have enough experience to know in a group this size and those that are listening and those that may listen even in the future that you can say, oh, that word was me. Or you may even say that word is me. I continue to live that way and I continue to manifest that and I continue to find myself in need of forgiveness. And I think I can confidently say that there's certain sins which all of us share as Adam's offspring. If I were to say right now, have you ever been guilty of, oh, let me just add a word perhaps. Have you been, have you ever been guilty of pride? Anyone would raise their hands on that. Have you, you're proud to say, right? Are <laughs> 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 uh, sad to say, right? <laughs> Amen. You second, oh, she seconded that. <laughs> you're supporting your husband in that. All right. <laughs> Amen. You open the can now, you and you let it out. So, Amen. That's right. We've all been there. If anyone in this room said, "I've had an attitude before," oh yes, indeed. Does anyone in this room say at times I have been impatient? Oh yes, absolutely. And so you understand what I am getting at here, don't you? These are all failures. These are all times when we have not lived up with what, the God, what God has called us to. Well, we've not been like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because unlike all of us, he is perfect. We can never attach to his name adulterer. It even makes me cringe to even talk about the possibility of it. We could never say of him ingratitude and indifference and coveting and white lies and selfish and pride. I can't seem to stop. We could never say that of him. Then why would he forgive us? Because we have such a great need. See, in the title of this message, Why Does God Forgive When We Fail? 
implies at least really two things uh, that are pretty obvious, I think. God does forgive, and for that we should all be thankful, shouldn't we? That he is a forgiving God. The second thing that it obviously implies is that we will fail. And knowing that, we should live a life that is more cautious and, and more godlike and more looking to heaven so that we don't fail as much as we have in the past. And perhaps in the future, we can find a greater and greater gap in between those times when we fail our sweet Lord. And this Lord that is so abundantly patient with us. So why does he forgive? Well, in part one, we concluded that the Lord forgives because of his unchanging character, a character that is perfect and therefore unchanging. Therefore, we can rest assured that his promise to forgive us is true. And the second reason that he forgives us when we fail is his unchanging character is inbound to an unbreachable covenant. So I say, why do I say, why the word unbreachable? Well, today we live in a world where people are too often guilty of a breach of trust, a breach of contract. They're guilty of not fulfilling their promises. And that breach at times can do a great deal of damage to someone that was expecting something to be fulfilled or promised to be realized. I mean, if we were to go on and talk about the list of broken promises that come from politicians, oh my that come from even spiritual leaders, people that we may have looked to and said, oh, I can follow that person. I can emulate their behavior. He is in one sense, like Paul said in Philippians 3, follow us as we follow Christ. So he says, um, imitate us in our behavior, he says there. And in Corinthians, he says, imitate me as I am an imitator of Christ. They let us down. They don't keep their promises. They don't fulfill them. Their covenant is broken, but not with God, not with God. And at times they're friends that uh, break promises as well. Spouses that break promises. And the list goes on without end our disappointments and our disappointments should be with ourselves as well, because we are at times some of those friends, some of those spouses, some of those comrades well, we have not fulfilled what we promised to others. So God forgives us when we fail because of his character that says, I'm a God that is a God of constant love and nothing can change that. The moment I decided that I would show you my love and you would be showered with it, the thought perhaps even of Ephesians 1, nothing can change it. And this is why Paul says to us in Romans 8, this, this chain of salvation cannot be broken. This same God who has ordained us will in fact glorify us and nothing can change that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. Amen for that, right? And now we have this covenant with him. So let's talk about this unbreachable covenant. This unbreachable covenant is this. First, let's consider how it is defined by God. Well, first, though the meaning of the word is somewhat obscure, it's generally agreed that the word signifies a binding agreement between two parties. One person has said this, a covenant is an agreement between two parties which binds them together with common interests and responsibilities and which is composed of certain component parts. 
a covenant with someone. And there are key words and concepts that come with this idea of a covenant. Let me give you some of these words. A common purpose, a common enemies, a mutual confidence, loyalty, exclusion of strife, oath. Let's go back through them for a moment. And you can go to that next slide. Common purpose. So if we think about common purpose, this idea that God desires that he be glorified. So now when we join into a covenant with him, we have a common purpose. God's purpose is that he glorify himself. And then our very life purpose is that we would glorify God. Common enemies. What are the common enemies? Well, what is the, who is the enemy of our soul? Satan, is he not? And is he not the enemy of God? And so now we have a common enemy, whereas before it was not a common enemy because we were God's enemy. We were sons of what? Disobedience. We were of the father, our devil. But now that we have entered into a covenant with God, now God joins with us and we with him. And we have a common enemy, the enemy of our souls. Now our soul is secure in God, but this but the enemy of our souls seeks to do what? As much as he possibly can to disturb our relationship with God. He cannot take us away from his love, but he can surely put as much as he can before us to make us stumble, to make us ineffective, to cause us to look to the past. So common enemies, mutual confidence that we have. And what is this mutual confidence? We have a confidence that God is in fact faithful and God has surely a confidence in himself that he will be faithful. This is why God tells us in Paul's letter to Timothy that he cannot deny himself. He will remain faithful to us even if we are unfaithful. There's a sense of loyalty and absolutely we have this loyalty and it is reciprocal. He is loyal to us and we strive to be loyal to God. There's most definitely an exclusion of strife because now that we're in covenant, because we were at enmity with God, now we have peace with God. And we should all be thankful for those words. And of course, there's oath. A promise has been made. God has promised that our salvation is is secure and it will be fully realized. It's defined by God, but it's also initiated by God. By initiation, I mean that God has sought us. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in him, Ephesians 1, 4. And the sacrifice for our salvation was already determined. Uh, John 1, 29, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is also the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The fact that God is the initiator in our relationship to him testifies to what fact? that he seeks our best interest and his glory. John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it in what way? Abundantly. Ephesians 1, 6, 12, 14 tells us what? All that God does in this arena of his salvation is for the praise of his glory. So our best interest, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly, and it is for his glory, it is for the praise of his glory, that he would be recognized above all other gods, not only in our own minds and in our hearts, but throughout the universe. Therefore, when we fail, 
we can rest assured that God longs to forgive and cleanse and empower us to continue in our spiritual lives. He is the one who seeks us out. He sought us in the initial stage of our salvation, did he not? All we like sheep have done what? Gone astray. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The scripture tells us plainly, it is not that we first loved him, but he first loved us. He initiated this love and he will continue to demonstrate this love. And so it's important for us to know that God's character is demonstrated in this covenant of what? A covenant of grace and mercy and faithfulness. Turn with me to Exodus 34 to prove our point there. Exodus 34 in verse 6, wonderful episode. Moses has prayed that the Lord would show him his glory, and he grants it in some measure here. And notice the declaration that God makes of himself in Exodus 34 and 6. And it says in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then it says, Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounded in loving kindness and truth. What a wonderful declaration is made. So we see here this covenant of what? I said earlier, it is one of grace and mercy and faithfulness. And what do we see here? Grace. Why is this important for us? Because here grace sees man as sinful and guilty and condemned. But what does he do? He imputes to him unmerited favor. If not for the grace of God, where would we be? Mercy. It sees man as miserable and needy. And what does he do? In the midst of that need, he comes to us. It's a realization of faithfulness. God will prove himself true. He is a faithful God, but it is also sustained by God. God has initiated a covenant of faithfulness and of forgiveness and reconciliation, but it must be sustained and necessary to sustaining this covenant is our forgiveness. We must be forgiven. God does not forgive initially and then through time, now it is left up to ourselves by our good works and in how we can please the Lord that we can hold on to our forgiveness. No, that is not it at all. And there are three reasons that um, this covenant must be sustained by God. Let me give you these three reasons. It must be sustained by God. And reason number one is this. It must be sustained by God because... This is the way in which God receives the glory. It is sustained by God so that God can receive the glory. And to help us illustrate this point, let's consider God's covenant with Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis. Go back a book. Go to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, uh, it may be a familiar part of the narrative for some, but not necessarily for everyone. And we might even say when we think about the covenant with Abraham, we have Genesis 15, particularly verse 9 and verse 17. We see it um, really in chapter 17 ratified there through the covenant of circumcision. 
um, 17.7. And then we see it again, of course, in 22, when there is going to be the offering of Isaac. But absolutely, I know that you are a man that fears me and loves me and is righteous because you're willing to offer up your son, Isaac. But notice in 15, this covenant, it's important for us to, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, oh, Lord God. What will you give me since I am childless in the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your body. He shall be your heir. So obviously a promise is given, is it not? And notice what he says, the word of the Lord Verse one, verse four, the word of the Lord. Then he took him outside and says, "Um, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, you shall be, so shall be your descendants. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And then he says to him, now bring, in verse 9, to me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old male goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all those to him and cut them in two and laid them opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down to the carcasses and Abram drove them away. You, you see the picture that's happening here? These animal parts that are, that are brought forth to them, and it's a way in the tradition of the time to establish a covenant. And literally, as the, the parts are there, the birds are coming, and you can picture him shooing them away. And then it says, notice verse 12. Verse 12 is so very important for our topic. Why does he forgive us when we fail? This is so very important for the Christian life. It is so very important that you understand that all that we have And the completion of our salvation is, in fact, an act of grace. We cannot participate in the sense of earning it and deserving it. It is not God starting this work and then we complete it in our own effort. And it is not as those who are under the sad and demonic teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that would say it is Christ plus your good works. It is not that. Why? Because notice verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they shall be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And when did that happen? Obviously, when they went to Egypt and did God keep his promise to deliver them. Yes, he did. And he says, but I will judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. Did that happen? In fact, it did. As you shall go to your fathers in peace, you will be buried at a good old age. Did that happen? In fact, it did. Then the fourth generation, they shall return there for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. That's right. They were, the Amorites were heaping judgment upon themselves and God would destroy them. And it says, verse 17. So notice verse 12, Abram is asleep. 
And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the two pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant. Why is that incredibly important? Because if you get the picture in the ancient culture, culture, what was happening here as this offering was brought forth to ratify this covenant, it was a statement to say, Jesse's these animals are dismembered and apart. So I would be dismembered if I ever violate this covenant. Now, it is so important in verse 17 that God is the one and that sort of glorious image that walks through. Does he walk through with Abram? No, he walks through how? Alone, by himself. It is a statement that I am the one that will keep this covenant. Is that in fact true? Of course it's true, because what do we see with the people of God time after time after time after time after time? Were they covenant keepers? No, they were covenant what? Violators. Was God the covenant keeper? Amen. And this is a statement of it here. And so it would have been, had in times past, the good doctor here, if we were going to enter into a covenant. Can you stand, good doctor? Yes, yes, yes. If we, yeah, if we were going to enter into a covenant with one another, here are the terms of our agreement. If you agree to protect me and I will protect you, and we would have these animals in front of us and they're laid aside, and we would walk through together. Right, there we go. Well, that's kind of odd. But <laughs> yeah, none of that stuff. All right. But you get the picture, right? Because it's saying, I am your equal. You are my equal. We will do this, what, together. You watch for me. I will watch for you. You watch over my lands. I will watch over your lands. We're equals. So if God walks through, who can walk with him? Hmm. Could anyone walk with God as an equal? No. And this is why God walks through alone. It's an unbreachable covenant. Because God is saying, may I be as these pieces if I ever breach this covenant. If I ever fail you. And you say, why does God forgive us when we fail? He's made a covenant. And that covenant is to glorify himself. See, had Abram walked through together, oh, Abram, and we do recognize him. He is, in fact, the the father of of faith, if you will. But there would have been, yes, Abram walked through with Yahweh together. It is because of Abram that God is faithful. It is because of Abram that we will come to our final realization of God's favor. No, 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 no. It is because of Yahweh who walk through alone. He will receive the glory. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17. He says to him there, now Abram was 99 years old and he appeared to him. I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Verse seven, I will establish my covenant. Verse eight, I will give to you. Verse eight, I will be their God. Verse nine, it is my covenant. Verse 10, this is my covenant. Do you get the picture? 
God forgives us because if he does not, then he is denying his word. Then he is denying himself. And he cannot do that. Consider Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. And it tells us what? Really verses 8 through, I'm sorry, 13 through 18. It's impossible, of course, for God to dissolve. We know that's a simple answer. And it's also impossible for God not to forgive or to linger in forgiving. Hebrews 6 verse 13 We'll start there. It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by what? Himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. And there may have been some parties at some point in time. There was a dispute between the families. Maybe there was a land dispute. Something had happened with but, uh, friction between the families. And they were going covenant. Let's put this aside. Let's make a covenant. And the ultimate dispute was ours with God. But God was not in any ways culpable. We were fully culpable. Whereas with men, there could be some sense in which you can say, say, for instance, if you have um, someone has dealt with a situation before and there are two people, maybe it's in counseling, you would generally say that there was always some fault with what? Both parties. Maybe it, it it's favors one a bit more, but there's always some fault with the other party. Now, generally what happens, and it's just, our nature, I think, that when the person that is having to dispute with the other, they come and tell their side of the story. Is that side of the story prejudiced? It generally is. And it may not necessarily be because they're being deceptive. It's just their perception of it, how they feel about the matter. And then you hear the other side of the story like, oh, my, there's some responsibility you have as well. And this is why the proverb tells us it's, you know, it's a shame and a folly to give an answer before you hear. But not with God. It's always one-sided. Verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his promise interposed with an oath or interposed or guaranteed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. We who have taken refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. That's a great promise, isn't it? See, God sustains it because he will be glorified. Go with me to Psalm 130. God is a forgiving God that he would be recognized amongst all the false deities, all the false religions, that it is Yahweh who forgives. Psalm 130, notice verse 3. Psalm 130, verse 3. It says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And what's the answer to that question? Exactly. Verse 4, however, are but... There is forgiveness with you. And what's the purpose behind it? That you may be feared. 
This is simply another way of saying what? That, that you would be recognized above all, all false deities. That you would be worshipped in a manner that's consistent with your person. That you would be lauded um, in a way that's consistent with who you are and all that you have done. That you would be glorified in all the earth. This is what the psalmist is saying. That you would be feared. You would be recognized. You would be lauded. You would be worshipped. You would be glorified. You would stand out. We would see you as unique. Unlike the gods of the lands. Go with me to Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And then verse 8. It says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me. And by which they have transgressed against me. I will be, notice what it says here. I'm saying, it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I will do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. That's a wonderful text, is it not? And notice what he's saying here again, that there will be a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations, which will hear of all the good that I will do. God is saying, I will forgive you. Why? Because of my covenant. I will give you, forgive you. Why? My character so that all the nations will say, oh, Yahweh. He is unlike Baal. Yahweh. He is unlike Asherah. Yahweh, he is unlike Ra. Yahweh is distinct. Yahweh forgives. And what sort of people does he he forgive? He forgives humble people. People that cry out to him and realize their need and their deficiencies. See, the gods of the land, they would have thought if there was any sense of forgiveness with them, it would have been somehow our God is the one that's going to forgive when we create these great and glorious sacrifices to him. Then he'll hear us. And maybe he'll heal our land. But for God, it's different. He said, here's the sacrifice that I want, a broken and contrite spirit. God will not despise. So why does he forgive us? (laughs) When we fail, he has one objective in it. One objective is that the glorification of his name and the glorification of his, of his name has these sort of multiple expressions. And what do I mean by that? These multiple expressions of him glorifying himself, it means this. He wants the son to be seen as a supreme sacrifice and ruler. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the father except by him. He wants the spirit to be seen as that one life-giving person. There is no life apart from the spirit opening the eyes of a, of a man or a woman and helping them to see their need, and then they can come before God in humility and be forgiven. God wants the Father to be recognized as the exclusive giver of all that is good. And this is what James tells us. It's the Father of lights from whom there is no variance. He is the immutable God, and he is the one that gives us all good things. And there's another reason that this covenant is sustained. 
is sustained by this, by the efficacious death of Christ. It's sustained by the effective death of Christ. It's illustrated in a lamb. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. Let me give it to you sort of in rapid fire here. Number one, the lamb of God would be a sacrifice. Um, Hebrews 9, 6 through 15, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 13. He would be that once and for all sufficient sacrifice. The very theme of Hebrews is he is superior to every priest, every prophet, and every sacrifice. And because of him, there is no need for any more goats and bulls and rams and lambs to be slaughtered. He is a supreme sacrifice. Number two, the Lamb of God would be a propitiation. Leviticus 4.35, the priests burn the sacrifice on the altar to make atonement for the people. You see this thought in Hebrews 2.17. Of course, we see it in 1 John 2, 2, 1 John 4, 10. Christ is a propitiation for our sins. And what does that mean? Now, you have heard the word expiation. This means to, to counsel out sin. Propitiation is the, this idea that it's God's wrath, his um, standards being satisfied. Now his wrath can be turned away. He was our propitiation. We could not satisfy God's perfect and holy standard. It required God to satisfy God. Number three, the Lamb of God will be a substitute. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, right? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a statement. I, I wish that I could spend, <laughs> I could spend hours on that. He made him sin on our behalf, who knew no sin. Those words that we use to open our time, never could any of those words be attached to him. But he paid for fornication. He paid for adultery. He paid for ingratitude and indifference. He, prayed, he paid for impatience. All of that laid on him. Galatians 3.13, he was cursed for us. Hebrews 9.28, he bore the sin of many for us. Number four, the Lamb of God would be a reconciler. His death would bring an end to the imagery between God and man. That is, those men who saw their need, those women who saw their need, so we can go from being at enmity with God to now having peace with God. 2 Corinthians 5, it's 18 and 19. We're now reconciled to God. But turn with me to the book of Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. And it says here, and I'll read it. Colossians 1. Um, verse 19. Colossians 1.19, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth are things in heaven. 
And we were, it says in verse 21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in even de- evil deeds, now we are reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a thorough change that takes place. This is what it's communicating. This is what Christ does. So there's some implications to this. If, if in fact, his death is that effective, it means that it's impossible for us to lose fellowship with God. Although at times we may feel that way. It means that the, there is a provision for our sins even into the future. His death is sufficient for the past, the present, and into the future. Now, of course, Paul would tell us that we shouldn't have the mindset because God's grace is so great that we would sin. Paul says, what? Uh, May it never be. But yet we realize that his death was, in fact, sufficient. Here's a third reason that it's sustained by him, by the effectual prayers of Christ. The effectual prayers of Christ. In the Old Testament, the high priest after having offered the sacrifices for sin, when he was in the outer court, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and a censer with burning incense. And he entered beyond the veil and he sprinkled the blood on this mercy seat. And that censer was in a sense, was an aroma going to God. And we see throughout scripture that this censer recognized even, and if you go into the book of Revelation, it's this idea that the prayers of the saints that are going up. See, Christ's intercession for us cannot be disassociated from his sacrifice. It's a continuation of his work of redemption. He is our advocate. We have an advocate in heaven. Amen. First John 2, 1, Hebrews 7, 25. He is in this very moment making intercession for us as an advocate. He is our, our legal representative, if you will. He prays for us that we would not utterly stumble. Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews 4.15. If you would allow me for a moment, just um, Psalm 103. Psalm 103, when it talks about God as our father, he says he is a, a father and he is mindful that we are but dust. And this is why he has compassion towards us. It says he knows our, our ways. He's mindful that we are but dust. It's saying like a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Uh, if any of you have, um, you know, kids, um, you know, I was in a conversation with someone recently and actually it was a student. He was going through his message and he was talking about sin and how sin is just true for all of us. And he made a point in how there's certain things you don't have to teach your kids to do. What are some things you don't have to teach your kids to do? Sin. Yeah. You don't have to teach them to sin. I've never heard a parent say, boy, I just, I'm having such the hardest time, you know, teaching my kid, you know, um, Yeah, to be selfish. They just don't, they just resist it. (laughs) They just resist, you know, I try to tell them, don't share your toys as much, little kid. (laughs) Ah, They resist that. Have you ever heard a parent with that struggle? (laughs) They just learn it naturally, don't they? Share your toy, Johnny, Bobby, Sue, Carl, whatever it may have been. (laughs) It's in the nature Don't hit your brother or sister. Don't push. It comes out, does it not? 
and as sweet and cuddly as they can be, and as lovely as they are when you send out your Christmas and Easter pictures, they can be little, hmm, it's there. It's a part of us. And he says, but he's like a father. I'm mindful that you're but dust. I'm compassionate towards you. Yeah. You'll never be perfect. But I see you as perfect because of your relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ. I forgive you. Adultery, I can forgive you. Fornication, I can forgive you. You were at that computer screen and you looked again when you said you would not do it again, I can forgive you. You're indifferent towards people. Your heart has grown cold even towards me. I can forgive you. You know you're not giving your all the way that you should. I can forgive you. Sometimes your thoughts go in places that you are shameful of. And if you were on a a screen right now, you would be thoroughly embarrassed. You would leave the room. I can forgive you. Why? My character doesn't change. Why? I have a covenant with you. Our enmity is gone. You have peace with me. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. And I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why? Let me tell you why. It was laid on my son. All we, all you like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of you all. Why does he forgive when we fail? These are the answers. Father, we thank you for your love, which is unbending, unchanging. Your covenant cannot be violated. You will see us through to the end. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.